can be seated. Hey, so we're going to begin today with a little bit of uh, an interactive moment. Uh, I always want to remind you that if, uh, if, I'm, if uh, I'm speaking a word that's speaking to your heart, uh, you know, amen, Scott, you're awesome, any of those things are totally welcome, you know, here. Um, but today we're going to begin with kind of an interactive moment. If we get some lights in the house, that'd be awesome. And uh, if we can't come together around this idea this morning, then we're going to have a hard time uh, making this message work today. And so I'm going to put four words on the screen this morning, and then we're going to recite them together, okay? So just four words, and if you believe this, I want you to speak it out loud with me like you believe it, okay? So we're going to do this together as we begin today. Those four words are these, and we're going to say these together. Okay, are you ready? I have a weakness. Now, that was kind of a little bit weak. Um, First service, I said it was three words, and it's actually four, so I I corrected that between services. Let's try it one more time. I have a weakness. All of us have weaknesses. The person who's sitting next to you, who you came with today, is nudging you, go, yep, yep, you do. And you're like, "Uh uh-huh, and you too. And there's all, all of us have a part of us that looks a little bit like this, that, that is a little bit weak, um, and, and we tend to hide those parts of us. We tend to try to keep those to ourselves. Um, but part of growing older is gaining the self-awareness to know what are those weaknesses in our lives and where they lie. And as I've grown a little bit older, some of you go, Scott, you're not nowhere near old yet. I know, I said older. As I've gotten a little bit older, for me, my approach to weakness really is set up in these two words. It's acceptance and hunger. It's accepting that I have weaknesses and identifying them and then having some sense of hunger for those weaknesses to not derail me. Because the truth is all of us know people who've had their weaknesses destroy relationships. All of us know people who've had a weakness and it cost them a job. Many of you could think of somebody who once had so much potential, but their weakness cost them everything. And so it's not enough to name and accept your weakness. You have to also have some hunger to address it, to deal with it. And as a church staff, one of the things we're trying to cultivate as a staff value is a sense of self-awareness and honesty, knowing what our strengths are and knowing what our weaknesses are. And so on a regular basis as a staff, we do staff development, we do leadership development, we, we read books together, we watch videos together, we pass around articles, we go to conferences. And last year, we sat down and watched a video together by a guy named Patrick Lencioni, who's a, a business writer, but he's also a believer. And I love Patrick because he's, first of all, he's brilliant. He says really smart stuff. All of his books are just full of great wisdom. But he's also an ADD speaker, which is kind of fun to watch, you know? So he's speaking to a crowd of thousands and somebody sneezes and he says, bless you. And then he's totally lost for the next 15 seconds. It's really, really funny to watch. But in one of his talks he was giving, we were watching, it was about the qualities that make us good teammates, people to work alongside. And as we watched through this video together, it was kind of long and I kind of had a sense, okay, we run out of time. So I said, we're going to come back next week and talk about what we learned from it. So this week we came back as a staff. We all shared our notes, what stuck out to us. I said to our team, I said, hey, what I want us to do is look at these three virtues that Lencioni says all great team players have. And I want each of us out loud to go around the circle and acknowledge which of those we're weakest at. Which of those virtues is the weakest in you? And it was really quiet and awkward and no one wanted to go first. And I said, okay, I'm the leader. I'll go first. So I named mine. And then one by one, we went around the circle. 
And what was super fascinating and kind of funny to me is multiple times somebody would say, well, the virtue that I'm weakest at is blank, and everyone laughed. Everyone in the circle laughed. Say, Scott, why did they laugh? Because everybody else already knew (laughs) what everybody else's weakness was. They were just waiting for that person to go, do they know what we know? And are they going to say it? And it was like we could have almost filled in the blanks for each other. And that experience taught me an important lesson. That lesson is this, that people trust us more, not less, when we openly admit our weaknesses. See, that's counterintuitive because we think that the way to get people to trust you and like you is to hide your weaknesses and put up a perfect front, like you have it all together. But the truth is, you know the people in your life, you know what their weaknesses are maybe even better than they do. And you're waiting to go, are they going to be honest? Are they going to see what I see? Are they going to own it? And when someone that is in your life, it's a friend or a coworker or a family member, when they admit a weakness, it doesn't make you trust them less. It actually makes you trust them more because they know their weaknesses. And one of the things I've learned is that friendships reveal weaknesses. When you begin to build a friendship with somebody and you begin to get to know each other and you begin to grow closer and you begin to be more transparent with one another, you're going to discover the weaknesses. If I brought my friends on stage this morning, one by one, they could tell you all of my weaknesses, maybe even better than I know. Because time together and experience together and, and circumstances have revealed those. And what's funny is that even though friendships reveal weaknesses, When we're beginning a relationship, we do our best to put on our best. You go on a first date, what do you do? Put on your best. Try to do your best. You're trying to win somebody's approval. What do you do? You put on your best and you be your best. First service, I told a story that literally came to mind as I was standing up here. My wife and I started dating and one of her friends didn't like me. She wasn't a fan. And we got together one night and we were playing Trivial Pursuit, which I take very much pride in my, my prowess in. I have lots of random useless knowledge. And we're playing the game, and she cheats. And I call her on it, which means she likes me even less. And we're playing this game. It's me and Danny and two of her friends. And I'm trying my best to put on my best. I'm trying my best to make a good impression. And it happened. Yes. I farted. (laughs) And it was this really awkward moment. And they were all wondering, is Scott going to own it? (laughs) And so I just said what came to mind, wow, this is really awkward. And then we moved on. And we're now friends to this day, you know, 12 years later. But what's so funny is that my temptation was to just ignore it and keep on going like it didn't happen, pretending that I didn't do it. And that actually gets in the way. Sheila Walsh says this. She says, Our brokenness is a better bridge to others than our pretend wholeness will ever be. And you and I know this, that when somebody is transparent with us, or we're transparent with them, we connect through those weaknesses in ways we never would if we kept pretending that we had it all together. 
Many of us in relationships, we wear masks. We give off this vibe that we have it all together. And yet the truth is, no one can love your mask. They can only love the real you. And so this morning, as you talk about weaknesses, this is the central idea that we're going to talk about as we conclude this series on friendship today. The big idea this morning is this, that true friendship is the product or the outcome of loving someone else in their weakness. Real, true, lasting friendship is the product or outcome, what we get through the process of loving someone else in their weakness. And since we all have weaknesses, we have an opportunity to both be loved and love in those places. We have an opportunity to experience the kind of friendships God created us for. This morning, we're going to examine a friendship that I knew from the beginning of the series that I wanted to get to. It's in the Old Testament in the book of Ruth. So if you have a Bible, open up to Ruth. It's in the eighth, it's the eighth book of the Bible. It's between the book of Judges and 1 Samuel. And as you're turning there, I just want to give a, a thank you to Pastor Tom, who shared for me last week about strategic mentoring or friendship. I had a chance to um, uh, spend some time with a friend of mine named Tyron Matthew, who plays for the Houston Texans. They beat the Dallas Cowboys on Sunday night. We were there for that, which is awesome, because I hate the Cowboys. And uh, it was a great, great day. We had a chance to spend time with him. Also, I have some incredible family in Houston, Texas. My grandparents live there. My grandfather is in his late 80s, and he's suffering the effects of a couple strokes. But it was great. And I to put a picture up for this, but um, my grandfather's name is Lewis Edward Finley. My name is Scott Edward Savage, and my son's name is Wesley Edward Savage. And so all three Edwards were together in one place. It was a great, great time, and um, I'm grateful for Tom preaching so I could go and be there with him. So if you don't know the story behind Ruth, Ruth is set in 1200 BC. It's set in the time of the book of Judges, before there were kings in Israel. But it's, it's most likely not written down until later in the time of King David. It was carried on as a story through oral tradition. Uh, Ruth is set in the nation of Israel, and then they move to the nation of Moab, and they come back to Israel. And the story begins with this family, Naomi and her husband, who really isn't that important. We don't really ever hear his name ever again after the beginning of the book. She and her husband and their two sons, they leave Israel because of a famine. There's no rain, there's no crops, there's nothing to eat. So they go to Moab to get food. And while they're there, her two sons, they fall in love and get married to two women, Ruth and Orpah, which you'd be confused to think it's Oprah, but it's not. It's Orpah. It's the same spelling, same words, just different spelling. So while they're there, they marry those two women. But sadly, both of her sons die in Moab and her husband dies in Moab. And so there's three widows living in a time in which women can't vote, their testimonies aren't recorded in court, and they cannot own property. They are completely exposed in a foreign land, and they get word that there's food back in Israel, and so Naomi decides it's time to go home. But she and her daughter-in-law, mother-in-law and daughter-in-law, get in a fight, which I know is so hard for you all to understand. That would happen even in the days of the Bible, but it's true. And so from this fight today, we're going to learn three lessons from this fight. And the first lesson is this. We're afraid of being too much or never enough, so we push others away. We're afraid of being too much or never enough, so we push others away. I'm going to begin by reading in verse 7, and I'm going to ask the team in the back to just advance my slide so I can read from my Bible. 
In verse 7 it says, So she, that's Naomi, set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you've dealt with me, dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant you rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. That would be a future husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices, and they wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb, that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. And if I should have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter for me, for your sake, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and they wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, indicating that she left. But Ruth clung to her. Naomi is essentially saying, there's nothing here for you, ladies. In this time, there was a practice called leveret marriage. And leveret marriage was the, the way that family lines were carried on. Your name was your legacy. Your legacy was in your sons. And so Ruth and Orpah, Normally, if there was a third son in the family, would have married that third son and he would have carried on the family legacy through them. But there are no sons. And Naomi says, even if I got married tonight and got pregnant immediately and waited nine months and then many years, would you wait for that? That's never going to happen. She says, I have no way to feed you. I have no way to provide for you. In essence, what Naomi is saying is that this situation is too much. And I'm never going to be enough to give you what you need. And these two phrases have been uttered by so many of us when we've been in painful and difficult situations. You've been told you're too much. Your personality's too much. Your challenges are too much. You're just too much. Or, or maybe and, you've been told you're never enough. You're never going to measure up. You're not going to have what it takes. Haley Morgan and Jess Conley wrote a book called Wild and Free, which I've not read. But in their subtitle, they talk about women who struggle with feeling too much or never enough. And it's great that there's a book to women on that. But this struggle is not unique to women. Most men that I know who are honest struggle with feeling like they're never enough. They don't have what it takes. And if you've ever been in a season or ever had the feeling that you're too much or you're never enough, you know what your biggest temptation is there to isolate yourself, to push people away so that they don't hurt you the way you've already been hurt. You're waiting and hoping that someone else doesn't say those same words. I've believed these words because I've had them spoken to me as a pastor. Scott, as a pastor, you're just too much of this. Scott, you're never going to be enough of that. And to be frank with you, when I came to Prescott, I kept some people at arm's length because I was afraid they were going to repeat those same words about me, that I was too much or I was never enough. And I didn't want those words to be true. 
And so like Naomi, and like a lot of you, when we believe those words, we push others away. In one of his books, Henry Nouwen talks about this idea. He says, the voice of evil tries to tempt us to put on an invincible front. Words such as vulnerability, letting go, surrendering, crying, mourning, and grief are not to be found in the devil's dictionary. Someone once said to me, Nouwen says, never show your weakness for you will be used. Never be vulnerable for you will get hurt. Never depend on others for you will lose your freedom. He says, this might sound very wise, but it does not echo the voice of wisdom. And yet, this previous slide is the way a lot of us relate to people. Not because we're bad people, but because we're wounded people. And we keep others away so that we won't be used, so that we won't be hurt, and so that no one will take our freedom. But that isn't where the story ends with Esther, sorry, with Ruth and Naomi. It's where it begins. And the second lesson we learn from this story is that true friends push through those fears and they keep showing up. True friends, they push through our fear and they keep showing up. Back in the text, if you'll turn there, in verse 15, we read this. Naomi says, see your sister-in-law, Ruth Orpah. She's gone back to her people and to her gods. So return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said to Naomi, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. This passage, let's go back one slide. This passage is often used in weddings and for good reason. But originally it wasn't about a married couple. It was about friends. In the same way that 1 Corinthians 13 is used in weddings, but it wasn't originally about weddings. It was about friendships in the church. And these are the words that Ruth says to Naomi. You can't get rid of me. I'm not going away. In fact, in the next verse, in verse 17, it says, Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. In essence, you're going to have to kill me to get rid of me. I have a love-hate relationship with these kind of friends. I love them, but they scare me. Right? Those friends who push through my fears and keep showing up, I need them. And I'm terrified of them. Because they're impossible to control. And when you're in fear, when I'm in fear, we are always tempted to move to control because it gives us the feeling of being powerful again. In his book, Scary Close, Donna Miller admits, he says, you can't have a true intimate relationship with people you control. Control is about fear and intimacy is about risk. And this is our struggle. Are you going to love people or are you going to control them? Are you going to allow them to see you and love you and run the risk they might hurt you? Or are you going to keep them at an arm's length? This is what Naomi has to face. Ruth says, I am not going anywhere. Your people are my people. Your God is my God. Your land is my land. Where you go, I will go. You're going to have to kill me, Naomi, to get rid of me. I am in this with you. Ruth is, in essence, doing what the friends of Job did in the book of Job. You may know the book of Job. It's the best book if you've ever gone through suffering in the Bible. 
Job loses everything. He loses his kids. He loses his wealth. He loses his health. He's living a prehistoric country song long before we ever had CMT. He's living it. And in the middle of his pain, his friends show up. And for one week, they sit with him silent. And they're amazing friends. But the weekends, they stop being amazing friends and they start talking. They start sharing cliches that don't help. And ultimately, they begin to blame Job for his suffering. But in the beginning, they're so helpful because they show up with him and they're simply present with him. And if you've ever been through a hard time, the loss of someone you love, the loss of a dream, some sense of grief, the aftermath of an incredibly traumatic experience, you know that you don't need your friends and family to show up and solve it. You need them to show up and walk with you through it. And that's what Ruth does with Naomi. And lesson number three is that like Ruth, friends hold space for our weakness and our brokenness. Friends hold space for our weakness and our brokenness. The passage in Naomi 1 concludes with these verses, beginning in verse 19. It says, So the two of them, Ruth and Naomi, they went on until they came to Bethlehem. Yes, the same Bethlehem we're talking about a bunch in about a month and a half. Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? We know this lady. And she said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, which means bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, a husband and two sons, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Mm. Kind of dramatic there, right? I mean, if Naomi was in your small group, and you're like, oh my gosh, I've got to go on Tuesday and hear about Naomi's problem again. I'm sorry, Mara, she changed her name, you know? And Maybe I'm the only one who's honest about my experiences in groups. But I love Naomi, because she's honest. She says, I'm bitter. God took everything I held dear. And because she's honest, you're going to watch if you read the book of Ruth. And if you haven't read it, I'd encourage you to go home today and read it. If you follow the arc of the book of Ruth, Naomi, because she is here and honest, you can watch where she starts and where she ends. And they're radically different places. And one of the reasons that that journey happens is because of the friendship of Ruth. Ruth holds space for her. Holding space is a phrase that our friends Joey and Robin Kaufman used a few weeks ago in their interview. And holding space is nothing more than walking with someone without trying to fix them or control their outcome. Holding space is a term that's often used in a counseling setting, that a counselor holds space and allows a person to process and work through what's happened to them without trying to fix them or control their outcome. Because let's be honest— our greatest temptation when somebody is processing through those things with us is to try to fix it. Not because it makes them feel better, 
makes us feel better. We want to work them through that place because them being there makes us feel uncomfortable. But when you hold space for someone, you allow God to do what neither you nor the person could do on their own, to change them. Because I know this, this morning, none of you woke up and said, I hope somebody fixes me today. You know what you woke up and felt? I want to be loved today. I want to be known today. I want somebody to embrace me where I am today. And some of you may know that you're not in a good place today. But you want somebody to meet you there in the middle of that. Now, I know some of you are thinking, Scott, you're just being soft on sin. We're just going to let people do whatever they want. No. Week three in the series, remember, was about tough conversations. And we said that the friendships we want are on the other side of conversations we've been unwilling to have. So what that means is there are times where you have a hard conversation with someone, but most of the time, tough conversations with people come as a result of two things. A blind spot they have that you're pointing out, or two, some sin issue they're unwilling to deal with or repent of. That is not what happens with Naomi here. In this story, Naomi says, I'm bitter. This has happened. I'm angry about it. It's God's fault. And this is where I am. I'm Mara now. And because Ruth walks with her through that, the story arc goes, and she doesn't end up Mara, even though right now she is Mara, which is the same hope that you and I have, that where we are today is not where we will be one day. If God continues to work and the people around us hold space for us and allow that to happen. As I was reading through this story, I was reminded of of the story of Jesus and how Jesus comes to us. You see, many of us, when we think about Jesus, we think about those artistic images of Jesus where he's bronze-skinned with long flowing hair and an epic beard. And he appears to have been doing P90X fairly regularly. It's not Jesus that you meet. In fact, in the the book of Isaiah, the prophecy about Jesus says that Jesus grew up before him like a young plant, vulnerable. Like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. And no beauty we should desire him. So if you see a picture of Jesus and you go, man, he's, he's good looking. It's not a good picture of Jesus. If you pass Jesus on the road... You wouldn't have noticed him. He was normal, maybe even homely. But the passage continues. It says, Jesus was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by or with his wounds, we are healed. You have weaknesses. I have weaknesses. But because of Jesus, those weaknesses don't define us anymore. Those places that you're ashamed of, those things that you have regret over. Jesus came in weakness and he was crushed for them. He was pierced for them 
and through his wounds, you can be healed there. That's why we celebrated communion this morning. And so when we meet people who have weaknesses, we have an opportunity to love them like Jesus by not running from their weaknesses, but loving them there. As I was thinking about my weaknesses, I thought, who has loved me better than anybody else in my weaknesses? And the person I thought of was my wife. And so I'm going to invite her to join me on stage right now. You want to give her a round of applause. I had someone come to me after first service and they said, bringing your wife on stage is very courageous because you never know what she could say. It's true. Um, But we did kind of practice this a little bit and so we talked about it. Um, And so first question is, what stuck out to you from the message today? Um, Well, when I read your notes, because... I knew what you were going to say before you, you talked today. Most of the time you do. Um, I do, yes. Um, I, uh, I, what, one of the things that stuck out to me was the, the part about um, pushing away um, because we think we're either too much or never enough. And um, I know that we've had to deal, um, deal with this. Um, it was when we were in Phoenix. Um, I, had a, I was in a position in my job where I was dealing with some hard cases and I was dealing with some secondhand trauma, and um, you were having, dealing with frustrating church people. And um, so we wouldn't really talk about what was going on because he didn't want to tell me what he was frustrated about because, well, I, uh, um, I was dealing with stuff at work that was overwhelming and stressful and really emotionally draining. And so we would talk to other people, but we realized that we were doing this, and we had to kind of be very intentional, intentional about asking questions um, about what what was going on, and um, I mean, I even had to deal with frustrating church people. Um, <laughs> I most people don't like that I'm a prosecutor, and I'm married to a pastor, so I don't really care. But um, some people don't like that, and there were a lot of people that didn't think that said some hurtful things. Said some very very hurtful things that I had to that we had we had to talk about, and so I was always dealing with the pushing away and isolating myself from Scott and also having people who were judging me for who I was and who I was called to be. And I, for me, when I get overwhelmed emotionally, I turn in and I isolate. And so there were times where you had to come to me and say, I want to know something's going on. You're turning in. Um, you need to let me in. And, um, it was tough. It was scary. Um, but, uh, but you pursued me like that again and again. Um, one of the other things I wanted to talk about um, was in the very beginning, if you go back from recent to the beginning, you know, we um, really kind of came together in the midst of kind of some crisis that I've shared about before. But um, you really were kind of putting me to the test about whether or not I was trustworthy and you could be vulnerable with me. And, and so you asked me some hard questions and I figured out pretty early on that, that trust was going to be a thing you struggled with in the beginning. I ask questions for a living and I like to ask hard questions, um, and um, especially in relationships because I'm very picky about who I let in. And so I asked Scott some questions before we were even dating that I needed to know. Um, growing up, I had a lot of body image issues, and um, so I asked him, I said, what would you do if I had a kid and I got fat? That's, we weren't even dating it, by the way. I'm like, why are we, why are, why are we here? Like, this is moving very fast. Um, this was an important question for me because I needed to know that even as a friend, was he safe? 
and um, and it was because of things in my life that I was dealing with and struggling with and continue to struggle with that I had to that I felt like I had to ask that question and there were other questions that's the only one I could think of you're <laughs> <laughs> taking this interactive thing really seriously today so <laughs> to be honest I don't remember I just remember it I had asked somebody another boyfriend prior to that and that wasn't a good answer. I don't remember what Scott said, but I do remember that I was like, you know what? Okay, I can, I'll keep them around. It's a good answer. Well, but I think it was also like, it wasn't just that season, kind of looking back, like it's, it's been a continual process where, where there've been times even recently where we've kind of discovered things or unearthed things, um, in our past, we're both going through counseling and, um, and it's like, okay, it never gets easier to share. You know, it's always a risk. It's always uncomfortable. It's always requires courage. And so I think even now we're still going through that process of are we going to choose to trust each other? Are we going to choose to let the other person in? Yeah, because we've been married for 10 years. And... But, it, but it's, still, it's still hard. Yeah. Um, one of the things that um, I asked a few weeks ago was this question of what's it like to be on the other side of me? And so one of the questions I have for you is what it's, what's it like to be my friend? What's it like to be married to me? As I said earlier, you already know the answer. I do. You saw my notes, I did. I, but, I definitely. I peaked. Um, I, uh, when you asked me to think about this question, I said redundant and repetitive. And it sounds funny, but it's honest. And it's the same with any relationship and any friendship. Um, you're you're looking at um, you're looking at a person who's going through a process and. Um, they're gonna have. They're gonna struggle with the same things, and you're gonna have to continually say, "You know what? It's okay. I get it. Let's move on. I love you, no matter what." Um, and so it's it's constant, um, and that's why I say redundant and repetitive because it may not be a struggle in the same way, but it's still a struggle. So, like for example, like we can share, you know, a, a real example. For me, before you, I dated some people who, when they said they for, they forgave me, didn't. And uh, they would continue to bring up my weaknesses and mistakes. And so when I started dating you and you said, I forgive you, and then you did and moved on, like, I didn't believe it. Yeah, like, for, like, for years. You didn't get it. I didn't get it. Nope. Um, because I, I spent a lot of my life uh, where something would happen and, and someone would say they'd forgive me. And then it would be brought up later because I screwed up again because I'm human. Um, and so I have made a conscious effort um, in all of my friendships and all my relationships. If you say, I'm sorry, will you forgive me? And you actually change, I'm going to say, okay, I forgive you. Let's move on. And I'm not going to bring it up again. And There were even times where like, I would remember yeah. things, but you like, literally couldn't remember them. Yes. And um, happens a lot. you had, you had for, totally forgotten about that. I forget things. You do. And I remember everything. Um, and so... So yeah, that was, that was really tough. One of the things that um, I wanted to share about being friends with you is I, I tell myself that there are things that you don't want to know or things that you don't want to hear or things that are too much for you. Um, and yet those are the very things that you want me to share about. And so it's often for me, like, what's the conversation I'm afraid of having with you? And, like, that's the very conversation we need to have. Like, it's almost like I, I follow the fear when it comes to you. And so um, that's, like, my green light. Um, and so being married to you has helped me to continue to wade into those things that I'm, I probably would have avoided 
Um, but you just kind of go, hey, let's, let's go do that. Uh, let's go work on that. Um, there's probably some people in the room here who've um, been provoked by what we've been talking about or the message today. You know, what, what advice would you give them about loving people in their weakness? Because you've had to love somebody in the midst of a lot of weakness here. Um, be patient. Open your ears and shut your mouth. Um, and I say that because we have to be patient with each other. And um, part of patience is listening and not coming up with your reply while the person is talking. Because that's not helpful. Um, open your ears. Listen. Everybody's got a story. Everybody has a story to tell. And sometimes somebody just wants you to listen. They don't want you to try and fix something. They want you to shut up and listen. So just be patient. And if there's a time to say something, say it. But be very careful because we say some dumb things in the church that aren't helpful and are sometimes hurtful. And yeah. Awesome. Thanks, babe. Okay. Danny's getting over being sick, so I haven't like, kissed her in a week, so that was our cheat kiss we're working on. So uh, before we go today, I have a couple of next steps I want to share with you on the back of your handout here taking notes. And, and the first one is pretty simple. It's just to identify the place where you're afraid of being vulnerable or showing weakness. Like if I started talking about weakness this morning and something came to mind, and it's been coming to mind for the last half hour, that's probably the thing. And if, if you're scared... That's probably a good sign. Um, fear often for us means a red light, when in actuality it should be a green light, that it leads us. Number two, determine the safe people in your life with whom you can be vulnerable. We live in an era and an age defined by social media. And one of the lies that social media tells us is that because somebody is your friend on Facebook, they are entitled to all the details of your life. That is a lie. And some of us feel like we owe it to people to tell them the full story, and we don't. Not everybody deserves to get let into that level. And, and as somebody who has wrestled with my relationship to social media over the years, I can tell you that it's hard to know what to share and what not to share, and with whom to share and who not to share it with. And a couple years ago, I stumbled on this, this quote from the Bible teacher, Beth Moore, who said that we should be authentic with all, we should be transparent with some and we should be vulnerable with few. And what that means is that everybody should get the real you. Don't fake it. Don't put on a front. But be careful who you are transparent and truly vulnerable with. Because not everybody deserves to get the full story and sometimes you're not ready to share the full story. We don't need to live in a world where we're being fake or inauthentic. But we need to be wise about who we trust and who we let in. And in this age of TMI, where everybody knows everything about everybody, that isn't always a good thing. And then number three, seize an opportunity to reveal a weakness or move towards a friend's weakness. Maybe for you, it's a somebody in your life who hasn't known what's been going on and you choose to take the opportunity to share. Or maybe it's you know somebody has a weakness and you know that they've been holding you at bay. And you go, I'm going to be the friend who pushes through that fear and shows up. Not to fix it, not to give answers, but to be patient and to listen.
True friendship is the product of loving people well in their weakness. And because we all have weaknesses, we can be those kind of friends and we can allow others to be those kind of friends to us. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the audio from Cornerstone Church in Prescott, Arizona. For more information, visit us online at www.prescottcornerstone.com.